I'm going to take a few moments while they're still passing the baskets to uh, recap where we are in our sermon series. We are very near the end of Seek First, where we go through the Sermon on the Mount and just talk about the kingdom of God and the culture of heaven. And um, this isn't the last one. Next week will be the, the actual last one, but we are very near. I know Jesus probably gave this message in like under 10 minutes, and we're taking over 10 weeks, but that just shows we care about everything he has to say. Um, and I also want to start by saying, this is a little intro to my intro, I guess. Um, it, it can be easy to understand the Bible, but yet still live in sin. Because we can understand something through uh, explanations. I could stand here and explain something to you, and you can get it right here. But we can still be defeated by sin, and we, we actually haven't got it. And the perfect example of this is the devil, right? He probably understands the Bible more than anyone here, but he's full of sin. And explanation and understanding like that doesn't actually help us overcome sin. What we need is revelation. And I say that to say, like, the message I'm bringing this morning requires revelation. And the only way revelation comes is through humility. Some people say, like, if I don't understand something in the Bible, maybe I just read it over 10 times. I think Paul would argue in Ephesians 1, you could read it over 100 times and you still wouldn't get it. What you need is the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And Jesus said in Matthew 11, talking to the Pharisees, he says, I thank, God that, I thank God that he has hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and, and revealed them to babes, to infants. And what do infants have that we don't have, that we have to fight for? That, that's humility. They know they need to trust in their heavenly father. And so today, we're in Matthew chapter 7. We're talking about the narrow way, the narrow way. And it's something that we need a revelation on. And my concern is, this is a genuine concern for, for Christianity in this church, is that we can come to church, we read our Bible, we understand it, we get it here, uh, we go to life group, we do all the things, yet we still are defeated by sin in our lives and we end up missing it. And we find, after a while, that we've been traveling along this broad way the whole time. And my hope is that this morning I can bring some clarity on the two paths that Jesus set before us and that we might choose to walk the narrow way and understand what that even means. Okay, so let's turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, we're going to start in verse 13. Also, it's good to have more grandparents in the house. That's like 50% of the reason we do baby dedications. Like, let's just get more grandparents here. Maybe not 50%, but... Okay, Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 13. So where, where Jesus is right now in the Sermon on the Mount is he's basically done teaching. He's, he's laid out what he's teaching, and he's kind of concluding his message with this verse onwards, and he's tying a bow on it. And so in his concluding message, he gives us two warnings, two very important warnings, and we're going to talk about those warnings today. One is a warning about going the wrong direction, and the other is a warning about following wrong directors, wrong direction and wrong directors. And so let's read it. So Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. You can follow along. I think they'll be on the screen. It says this, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. 
A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. Okay. Okay, it's a good one. Baby dedication, right? Let's just partner that together somehow. Um, but let's start with the, the wrong direction, his warning about going the wrong direction. And, and if you notice, there was a contrast of twos. Uh, there's two gates in which you could enter. There are two roads in which you could walk on, two crowds you should expect, and ultimately two destinations you could arrive to, one or the other. And the importance of entering the narrow gate, walking the narrow road, being among the few is for that obvious reason that that is the only road that leads to eternal life. That is the road to life. And so we'll start with the gate. The gate is probably um, the most understood picture. If I'm talking to this room, maybe outside in the world, they probably don't understand it. But in this room, I think it's the most understood picture of what Jesus is talking about. I don't think anyone would argue that the gate we must enter through to inherit eternal life is forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. I, I think we get that. The world may disagree, but John 14, verse 6 says this, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 10, verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So this truth that Jesus is the only way to the Father is probably offensive to the world, right? That's one of the reasons the world would think that Christians are so narrow-minded or something like that to believe that Jesus is the only way. But that is what we believe because that is what is true, right? Uh, but, but that's the thing about truth. And I just want to mention this real quick. Truth is narrow. It just is. If you add one plus one, you get two. 1.9999999 is wrong. Even that tiny bit, 2.0000001 is, is still the wrong answer. It's very narrow. And so... We have to understand that when we look at the words of Jesus and we're trying to understand what is this narrow gate, what is this narrow road we're trying to walk. So it's not the two gates that worries me for this house, this Antioch Community Church here. What worries me and what concerns me the most is the two ways that Jesus talks about. We, we love the gate of forgiveness. We say, praise God, we enter this gate and our sins are washed as white as snow. But the difference between a gate and a way is a gate's like you enter in, but a way, a road is like you have to walk moment after moment, step after step, day after day for the rest of your life. And it's a bit more challenging because it's the way of obedience. Many Christians think that because they know Jesus, they are on that way automatically. I grew up thinking that. It's like, oh yeah, Jesus, the rest of it, I, I'm not going to actually dive into what it's saying because I got it. I, I know Jesus. And I want to say that is wrong. That is wrong. We have entered the narrow gate, sure. But Jesus said there was, the, the gate is small and the way is narrow. There's a gate and a way that leads to life. <clears throat> and in Hebrews 10, 20, Jesus, it says of Jesus that he opened up a new and living way for us to live, a new and living way. So Jesus puts before us these two roads, these two ways where we, we can walk, the wide, the broad, or the narrow. 
the small. And how do we know which one we are on? It's a good question. We should probably figure that out because the destination is at stake. Um, so let's start with the wide way. The wide way is easy. It's easy in the sense that the wide way says you can, it's okay to harbor anger in your heart as long as you don't externally commit murder. You can, you can be mad and angry at your brother, your spouse, your family. Just don't actually externally kill them. It's fine. It also says it's okay if you lust in your heart or with your mind or with your hand because as long as you don't externally commit adultery, that's okay. The, wa- the way is broad enough for even these little sins that we call. You can carry such bitterness towards someone that revenge is found in your heart and you ultimately find out one day you, you hate somebody. But as long as you externally don't communicate that, you still look like a nice guy on the outside, well, that's okay then. The wide way says, come on, not a problem. The wide way is even wide enough for ulterior motives in spiritual things. So in prayer and in giving and fasting, the wide way says, you know, you don't need just one motive when you pray or when you give, you know, to please God. That's, that's very narrow. <laughs> you can have multiple motives. As long as you look spiritual, as long as you go to the events and you pray loud and whatever, you can have multiple motives to be seen by men, to be applauded by men, or whatever it is. Come on, the wide way has room for you. It's even wide enough to bring luggage, your possessions, so you can still give to the church externally, right? I'm giving. But internally, the wide way says you can still carry a love for money. There's room enough for that as well. And so ultimately, the wide way allows room for our flesh. The flesh still reigns when we're we're walking along the broad road. And that flesh is our self-will, that thing within us that desires to do our own will. The very thing that Jesus said we need to put to death. So what is the narrow way, if that's the wide way? Well, the narrow way, if you've been tracking with us throughout these however many weeks we've been going, is basically the entire Sermon on the Mount. It's everything he laid out in the Sermon on the Mount. So he's concluding his message saying, now pick. You can choose the broad way, which is the externals, or the narrow way, which is where you take it deeper into your heart. And anyone who sets off to follow Jesus in this way will soon discover, like very soon, there's an obstacle in your path, the flesh. And if we want to walk the narrow way, we have to learn how to crucify the flesh, to die to ourselves, and to carry the cross. The narrow way is the way of the cross. And I hope in the next few minutes we can just unpack that some so we can walk away with a little bit of understanding that hopefully turns into revelation for us when we actually live out our lives. And so this narrow way, the way of the cross, is not a popular way, even in church. It's definitely not an easy way, and it's, it's not a glamorous way. But it does lead to life. It leads to eternal life. And it's crucial we see this because eternity is on the line. In the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, if you recall, it says in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said in verse 20, he says this, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I don't remember the last time I answered that when someone asked me, how do I get into heaven? Well, you got to be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees, but Jesus said that. What does he mean? I mean, the Pharisees and the scribes had a pristine external righteousness, they did all the things, right? They, they prayed so many times a day. They fasted so many times a week. They gave so much of their money. They followed the law. But the problem was it was all external. It was all on the outside. And anyone who follows in that way of just doing the external things is walking along the broad way. 
not murdering someone is not a narrow way, okay? There are mil- billions of people on the planet of all different religions, and I think I would argue that most of them don't murder. Does that mean they're walking the narrow way? No. The narrow way is actually don't even keep anger in your heart. If you get angry, get rid of it. That's a whole another way to walk. Jesus would later say to the Pharisees in Matthew 23. I'm going to read this to you. Matthew 23, verse 25. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may also become clean. You see, if you clean your heart of anger, it is impossible, literally, to murder somebody. You don't have to worry about that. And if you cleanse your heart of of lust, you don't ever have to worry about committing adultery because it's gone. It's not in your heart. It's kind of like an inward disease that that is, there's, maybe doesn't have any outward symptoms, right? Like, let's say you go to the doctor one day and they do some sort of blood test or like a scan or something, and all of a sudden you, found out, you find out that you have cancer. But outwardly, you felt fine. There was no symptom. You didn't see anything wrong with your skin or anything like that. And you, but, but that's what sin is like. And we say, well, I, outwardly, I go to church. I do the things. Like, I pray. I give. I go to life group. I lead life group. But inwardly, is, is the flesh still ruling? That's what we need, to, we need to figure out because man looks at the appearance, but God looks at the heart. God looks at the heart. And so it's watching this inner life that is the indication of the road which we are on. If we're, it, it tells us the direction we're going. And if we just avoid some of these external sins, Jesus' warning to his listeners is, is this, you're still going the wrong direction. I mean, I don't think church, like Christianity, we hear this often. But it's like, because you're doing, you're praying, you're, you're spending time with God in the morning, you're going to life group. But if it's all external, then Jesus is still saying, hey, you're still going the wrong way. And we need to be aware of that. And it's the wrong direction, because even though you can clean the outside of the cup, if in the inside, the flesh still rules, then it's all about you full of self, still doing your own will. The narrow way is doing the will of God, which means you'll have to do something about your own will because you can't have two wills living inside your heart. And it doesn't take much to discover that the will of God and your own will are at odds with one another. It doesn't take much to figure that out. Think of a toddler. So so a toddler has... They don't struggle with like sins of like adultery or murder or love of money or love of honor. But there's something that every parent knows that toddler has, and that's their own will. They want to do things their way on their timeline. They want their own way. Uh, my daughter, who's three and a half years old, her name's Adeline. I don't know if you saw her up here. She was, she's so cute <laughs> most of the time. But she, she's gotten to this phase where... If I tell her to do something, like, for example, say, Adeline, come over here, she'll just ask why, you know? Just why, Daddy? And I know what she's doing. She's sizing up the command to see if it aligns with her will. So if it's like, well, because I have a treat for you, then it's like, yes, sir, I will obey. (laughs) If it's like, because I need you to clean this up, it's like, no. And so she's asking why. I'm already at that point. I don't know how parenting is supposed to work, but I'm at that point where I'm like, because I said so. (laughs) Like, (laughs) three-year-old. Because I said so. Uh, 
I heard a story of a young boy who, in a similar fashion, was standing up, and his father wanted him to sit down and told him to sit down. The boy wouldn't sit down. So his dad threatened him with a spanking and got up to do so, and the boy sat down quickly and just frightened. But then he said to his dad, but inside, I'm still standing. Just, you know, just like, oh, is that right? <laughs> but that, that kind of illustrates the question that we face. It's how do we get that inside guy to sit down? Outwardly, we can do it. But inwardly, do I, am, I, am I joyfully submitting to that? Do I love this? Or do I hate that I have to do that? That's the difference. And I want to tell you, you can, you can obey God on the outside, like coming to church. But inside, there's still something that wants to do our own will. And unless that is crucified, we'll never be able to follow Jesus. Just to tell you plainly, you can't. You know, we can come to church outwardly obeying God. We're here. Yay, God wants us to gather. Don't forsake the gathering of the brethren. But inwardly, are you part of the body? Are you willing to lay your life down for the other members of this church? Are you serving? Are you, like, are you, are you in? There's a difference. We have to learn how to crucify that will of ours. So the narrow way is putting that self-will, the flesh, to death. To crucify the flesh so you can live for the will of God. Galatians 5.24 says this. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Luke chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. Jesus says this, and he was saying to them all, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake this is the one who will save it. There's more. Matthew chapter 10, 38 and 39 says this, and the one who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. The one who has found his life will lose it and the one who has lost his life on my account will find it. It's kind of extreme, not worthy of me, right? Uh, I had a, so before I was a pastor, I worked, uh, two jobs ago, I worked at, as a design engineer in Houston, uh, doing some oil and gas stuff, and we had a, a branch down in Nogales, Mexico, and so every now and then I'd have to go to Mexico just to work with the team there and do stuff, and there was a buddy of mine who was a, a, a software engineer, and we would talk and, and, and go to Starbucks after work and just catch up or just kind of get to know one another, and he caught, on to that, he caught on to the fact that I was a Christian, and so he was asking me about it because I think in his city, it was very clear that Christian and Catholic were very different. And he was neither. He was just like, hey, what's the difference between a Catholic and a Christian? Or what's the difference? And we just started talking. It was a great conversation. Um, but it, it ultimately led uh, to an opportunity for me to share the gospel with him. And so I'm sharing the gospel about the forgiveness of sins, about turning from your sins and, and trusting in Jesus for righteousness. And, and he is tracking with me and I'm, I'm seeing it. He's like, wow, I can see just a spark of the spirit of God moving his life. And then he asked me a question because we're talking about forgiveness of sins. And he goes, what if I choose not to forgive someone? And he explains his reasoning. He had like a, a little daughter who's about four years old at the time. And it was just a hypothetical situation, but he was like, if someone were to hurt my family or my daughter, there's no chance I'm forgiving them. It's not going to happen. And so he was like, so what if, what if that happens? And, you know, he, he was open to the narrow gate of Jesus, right? He was like, okay, tell me more. And so I was faced with this kind of moment of like, okay, 
I got to trust the Spirit of God. I'm, I'm going to tell him the truth. And I just told him, hey, man, if you're unwilling to forgive someone, God will not forgive you. Uh, and and I, I, we took him to Matthew 18. If you're curious, go read it. We just read it. And, you know, I proceeded to we'd talk more about baptism and all those other things, but thinking, okay, I lost him there. <laughs> it was too narrow. Um, but we ended up praying together, and he said, hey, man, I'm, I'm, I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to repent of my sins. And so we prayed right there in a Starbucks in Nogales, Mexico, and he gave his life to the Lord. And years later, he's still following Jesus without me being there because I don't live in Houston. I definitely don't live in Mexico. <laughs> um, but Jesus lays out a very narrow way. And he says, if you're not going to do this, you, you can't follow me. You must deny yourself. You're not worth like all these extreme words that we maybe don't talk about as much. But it's right there in red. Let me read one more in John chapter 12, verse 24 and 25. He says this, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The one who loves his life loses it. And the one who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. So if we can discover the way of the cross, the way of death to the flesh, to our own will, then we can find the way that leads to eternal life. Like, that verse, like this verse we just read, it said you have to hate your life. That is your self-life, telling that self that you got to die. It's, it's that getting that inner, inner guy to sit down when the Spirit of God is saying to sit down. You see, there is a place of hatred in the Christian life. I don't know if you knew that. You can hate one thing, and that's sin. You're allowed to have hatred for sin. In fact, Jesus hated sin. In Hebrews 1.9, it says that Jesus was anointed with the oil of gladness more than his companions because he loved righteousness and hated wickedness. He was happy. <laughs> he was more joyful than all of us. Why? Because he hated sin. Because he knew what that would do with the father, his relationship with the Father. And he loved his Father. And so anything that was going to get in between that, he hated with a passion. Jesus hated sin. And so a good test to see which road you're on is do you hate sin or do you just try to avoid it to the best that you can? One is the narrow way, the other is the broad way. And so if you're, I want to mention this though, if you're struggling with the sin, I want you to hear me. It may take years for you to find victory in some areas, but you still know if inside you love it or hate it. The more you struggle with the sin, the more you will either hate it until one day you will finally get rid of it. Even if it takes 10 years, keep fighting, keep hating it. That's one option. Or you'll, you'll continue in sin, and the more you realize, wow, I'm just making excuses and normalizing it, and it's not that big of a deal anymore. And you soon find yourself on the broad way that leads to destruction. So there are two gates. We understand that one. Christ versus everyone else, others. But there are two ways. The, way, the narrow way, which is the way of death to self, or the broad way, which is the outward appearance of righteousness, but inwardly the flesh through rules. And so you can expect two crowds. There's the narrow way, there's few. And on the broad way, there's many. And again, two destinations, heaven or hell. It's a very serious warning Jesus gives us about going the wrong direction. So the narrow way that leads to life is the way of death to your self-will. And those who love their lives will one day lose it. But those who seek to lose that self-life for the sake of Christ will find everlasting life. And it, it's what goes on 
inside that is the indication of the direction we're going. Just because we're here now, just because I'm here right now, look, you're looking at me, you don't know all the things going on. Just because I can share a word, just because you can go to life group, that's not the indication. All those things are helpful. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But the true test is, man, in that inner life, are you denying yourself when that temptation comes or whenever, whatever it is, and saying, what's the will of God in this moment? Well, right after explaining about the narrow way, in very close connection, Jesus mentions what would be the greatest peril along that way, which is following wrong directors. So we're going to talk about wrong directors now, false prophets, false leaders. And if you're worried about going the wrong direction, then it would be wise of you to pay very careful attention to who is directing you along that path. We should pay attention. To spot a false prophet can be a very difficult thing to do. It's a hard thing to do. And I'll give you three reasons why it's hard. Firstly, because of their teaching. Because of their teaching. We just read it here. They come in sheep's clothing, not wolves. Sheep's clothing is Christianity. It's, I would argue that most likely they will have proper doctrine, saying the right things and share many nice things. But that's the catch. They share, they share some of the truth, truth, but not all of the truth. I found that false prophets don't just tell flat out lies. There's no need to be, you won't be deceived if someone comes up here wearing a, you know, horns and, and saying, don't follow Jesus. We're not deceived by that. It's like pretty obvious. It's like, okay, that guy's not telling the truth. <laughs> But the deception comes in when it looks like a sheep and they say all the right things and they say nice things, but they're all half-truths. They cry, peace, peace, when there is no peace. They talk of heaven, but not of hell. They talk of the forgiveness of God, but definitely not the punishment of God. They'll talk of the love of God, but not the fear of God. They'll talk of the mercy of God, but probably not the justice of God. They'll talk of the narrow gate, Jesus, but they won't talk about the narrow way. And in this way, they have the appearance of being servants of Jesus Christ, sheep's clothing. Yet they will explain away things like the narrow way or, or the ways of Jesus. They explain things away that are clearly written in Scripture. For example, there's a verse in Philippians 4, 4 that says, be anxious for nothing. False prophet might come in and say, well, nothing doesn't actually mean nothing. Let's be, be real. I mean, life's hard and you can be anxious. Just nullify that verse. 1 Thessalonians 5, 18. In everything, give thanks. Christians should be thankful no matter what. We have life. But the false prophet might say, well, not in everything, in most things. Everything's a little extreme. They'll explain explain away the the narrow way of the cross as well. There's something incredible I learned in in Matthew chapter 16 I want to read and and point it out. Matthew 16, verse 22 and 23. This is just after uh, Peter confesses Jesus as the, the Son of God. And, you know, Jesus says, Peter, on this rock I build my church. And then he goes on to explain that he's going to have to go to Jerusalem and die on the cross. And this is Peter's response to that. Verse 22. It says, And yet Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's purposes, but man's. Can you imagine just Jesus rebuking someone like that, calling him Satan, just because he was trying to show his love for him, right? Like if that were me, if I was Jesus in that moment, Peter comes in here and says, hey, don't do that. 
I'm like, oh, I pull him aside. I'm like, Peter, I felt that's love, man. I appreciate that. Like, you don't want me to die. Thank you. Oh, love you too, man. But, you know, there's this thing, justification. It's gonna, you'll understand it later, but I got to die, you know. But Jesus didn't do that. He used some sharp words. He just, like, complimented Peter about understanding the revelation of Jesus being the Son of God. And then he's like, and get behind me, Satan. Like, what? <laughs> Why did he do that? Well, I would argue it's because he wanted them to understand how serious a mistake it is to avoid the cross. It's a serious mistake. To explain away the way of the cross or to say, don't go and die to yourself. Don't go die on the cross. That's the voice of Satan. Because Satan knows that when you do that, when you die to yourself and your flesh and your own will, when that dies, that leaves room for only one will, will to reign in your life. And that's the will of Christ. The devil doesn't like that. So he's like, go, go live for yourself. Don't die on the cross. And so that's what he wanted us to see. So even in this rebuke of Jesus, we see something so powerful. The voice that tells me not to die to myself, whether it's an external voice, some preacher, or my internal mind, it's the voice of Satan. And I learned there, and it says, you know, he says, for you are not setting your mind on God's purposes, but on man's. And so what do I understand right there? That God's purpose, God's interest is that we would die to ourselves. And I know this for sure because in the very next verse, he says it again. Verse 23, he says, uh, get behind me, Satan. Verse 24, he says this. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Here it is again. Here it is again. Jesus just pointing out and emphasizing that anyone who's going to go follow after him must be able and willing to deny himself, to take up the cross. So just remember, false directors, false leaders, false prophets, they come in sheep's clothing in their teaching. Uh, they say Christian things, but they won't emphasize the way of the cross. They'll minimize it at best. So listen closely to what they're teaching. Okay, that's one reason it's hard to spot a false prophet. Second reason, you can't tell them apart by their fervor or by their passion. They may cry, Lord, Lord, and they may get excited in church, but that is not the indication of a deep relationship with God that makes them a true prophet. Just because they're jumping up and down or crying when they pray doesn't mean they're a true prophet. Thirdly, it's hard to figure out a, true, a false prophet because of even their miracles. This is a tricky one. This one leads a lot of people astray. Jesus never denied that they did these things. If you read it, he says, he never denied that they did miracles or prophesied and cast out demons. But what did he say? Essentially, he said, so what? The power is in the name of Jesus. It's not in the prophet. Listen, we, we at this church wholeheartedly and unapologetically believe in the supernatural power of God. The, the amount of miracles we could, we could, the testimonies we could share are incredible. And I just want to share, there, there was a time in my life when I actually only felt affirmed uh, in my relationship with God if I saw him move in power. So if I saw a miracle, if I got a word of knowledge or a, or a prophetic word and it was on, then I was like, ah, God's with me. Proof. And if it didn't, I would be insecure and wonder if I was doing something wrong. And let me tell you something. I was deceived. I was just straight deceived. I spent some time in Africa doing mission work and we would go out into the villages and preach the gospel and pray for the sick. And, and firsthand, I, was, I would be able to see incredible miracles. 
I'm talking deaf man, 12 seconds later, he can hear. Like a lame, busted leg walking. I saw a lady who had a cyst on her cheek just dissolve right before my eyes. But not, I mean, not even just in Africa, even here. I mean, last week uh, in the college retreat, there were some, some miracles that took place. But I still remember after experiencing all these things, praying to God and saying, God, I need you to move and I need, I'm still missing this affirmation. I need you to move in power. And I thought, wait a sec, he is moving in power. So what am I really praying for? I was like, oh, I learned something in that moment. I was hoping that miracles would affirm my, my relationship with God, but it didn't. What I did learn was that if I were to live for the will of God and do the will of God, then I would find that assurance from the Holy Spirit. And so the supernatural power of God is incredible. We love it. Um, it just doesn't mean that the person who operates in that is someone you should follow. It may, it may not. So in these days, it's vital for us to use discernment. I mean, with the globalization of the world, we have access to basically any teacher, preacher, any type of teaching we want. We can just search online and listen to a message that we like. So we need discernment, not to quench the spirit by any means, but, by, but to test and discern and approve that which is good. Because there are good things going on out there and there are counterfeit things. And we have to know the difference between the two lest we be led astray. Okay, so how can we tell a true prophet from a false one is the question. If it's not these three things, then what is the indication? Well, Jesus said there was only one way. It had to do with thistles. I don't know what that is. A thistle? No, he said there's only one way. The fruit. The fruit that, that he bears in his character and the fruit that he bears in attaching people to the Lord and his church, not to himself. That's a good test. So after hearing him preach, do you feel more attached to Jesus? You want to cling to Jesus or do you feel like you, sh- you just want to go through that guy to go through Jesus to go through God? Do, do, you, do, you, do you sense this fruit of patience in, the man, in this man's life, of humility, of joy, of gentleness? I mean, we have spiritual senses. I just want to, in case you didn't know that, you have a sense, just with, I don't know how to describe it, but you have a spiritual sense, just like we have physical senses. You know, in the physical, if, if you're eating chicken, um, a chicken may look right, smell right, feel right, sound right. Like it's not, it's, it's the dead, it's not making noises, so it sounds right. Um, <laughs> but if you cut into it and take a bite, oh, it doesn't taste right. Something's, wrong, something, something's off. And, oh, it's undercooked. And I don't want salmonella, so I'm going to pass on that thing. We use our senses for food. How much more should we use our senses for spiritual food? When we're hearing something, something's off, he's saying the right doctrine, he's doing the right thing. He's got miracles. Oh, that's incredible. But something's off. Don't ignore that discernment right there. So we must examine the fruit of the man's character if we, want, if we don't want to be led astray. Okay, so this leads us to one of the most sobering, if not scary, verses in the New Testament, where Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And in fact, he says, many will say to me on that day, didn't we prophesy and cast out demons and do miracles? But that had no bearing in the final judgment. What did Jesus say instead? He said, he who does the will of my father will enter. He who does the will of my father. And this leads us right back to that narrow way where our will crosses with his will and that becomes the cross in which we have to die where we allow our desires to be crucified so that the work of Christ can be done. And what is the work of Christ? 
It says in John 6.38, he says, I came not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. We must learn what it means to walk the narrow road. Because once we discover that road and once we experience that, that dying to that flesh, the reality is that we read in John, John 12, when there's death there, then fruit can come forth. Then the life of Christ, the will of God is the only will that now reigns in my life. Because every time my will meets his will, it bows. It bows every time. We'll get to that place. Right now, it's a struggle. For us, for myself, it's a, it's a journey. It's sanctification. But when my will says, I want to get angry, the will of God says, I want you to be slow to anger. Okay, yes, Lord, I repent. When my will says, you know, I want, uh, I don't know, <laughs> click around on the internet, well, the will of God says, hey, don't, don't lust. We can find eternal life that way. Go ahead and get the band to come on up. We'll wrap it up here. Okay, so in both of these warnings that Jesus gives about going one the wrong direction and, be, and following the wrong direction, the directors, <clears throat> I tried to make that clever, now it's kind of a tongue twister for me. Um, the would-be failure on the part of the disciples was to judge the immediate rather than going a little bit deeper. Meaning they'll look at the surface of the thing, but not what's behind it. Looking at the appearance, but not the heart. That is the warning he's giving. That would be the failure on the part of the disciples. In other words, if you judge by the roads, if you just look at the roads and what the roads look like, you will make a wrong decision. And if you judge by the gifts of a guy, just looking at the gifts, you will make a wrong decision. You'll end up going the wrong direction, led by the wrong director. And if you don't take it deeper, you will look at the road and say, hey, this road, it looks nice. It's got things that I like. It's got community. It's got all the uh, blessing. It's got, it's got things that I like. So I think that's the right road, which to me, that's no different than my, my toddler saying, why? Well, if I, I'm going to size up that road, does it line up with what I want? Then I choose that road. Ultimately, it's still the self choosing what the self wants to choose. And the other road looks hard. Well, that can't be God, right? I have to give up my, my lust. I have to give up my love for money. I have to give up seeking honor. I have to give up possessions and owning, like possessing things in my heart. This bitterness, this unforgiveness, I have to give all that up. But that desire is within me. What do I do? Am I supposed to just let it suffocate and die? Yes. Yes, you are. Just like Jesus did. He suffocated and died on the cross. When that desire comes up, no, I need to do this. And you're waiting for, the, the truth is, when, when, the, when the temptation comes, we're often waiting around for something externally to take it away. Like God is going to remove it or something magical. It's like, no, you need to kill that thing. Let it die. Let it suffocate on the cross. The flesh profits nothing, but the spirit gives life. So let's look at the destination, not the road. Look at the fruit, not the gifts. Someone may say, hey, that guy's doing incredible miracles. That is awesome. I would say, amen. Well, let's follow that guy. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> Hold on. Let's evaluate the fruit of his character first before we decide to let's believe everything he's saying. We need discernment. Yeah, my hope is, is, is fairly simple in this message, even though it's kind of like one of more sobering, serious message. Um, but it is that we would at least see that 
there is a difference between the narrow way and the broad way, and it's not as simple as maybe we thought. It's not as simple as, well, I go to church, I try not to cuss, I, all the external things. But Jesus is saying, what about that inner life, the hidden life? I mean, his, his warning to us in multiple different places is what's going to be revealed is the inward thing. The hidden things will be revealed one day when we stand before Christ. And that, that tells us everything. And so we must be disciples of Christ who are willing to carry the cross daily and to do the will of God inwardly. And that we must follow those not who impress us, not who are cool, not who amaze you, but who make you want to do the will of God more. That's who you should follow. It could be a 15-year-old. But if something in that person's like, man, I just, I want to pray more from the heart. I want to get away and close the door. I want people to know. If something in you is like, I, I just want to obey Jesus more, okay, you can follow that guy. So let's not lose sight of the destination. Let's commit to walk in the narrow way. Why don't we go ahead and stand? I'll wrap it up. I want to end by reading a story in the form of a poem, okay? I, read, I came across this probably five years ago, and it's just kind of stuck with me, and I want to share it. It's, a, it's kind of long, but that's okay. We're wrapping up. It's titled, The Church Walking with the World. The church and the world walked far apart on the changing shores of time. The world was singing a giddy song, and the church a hymn sublime. Come, give me your hand, said the merry world, and walk with me this way. But the faithful church hid her, hid her gentle hands and solemnly answered, Nay, I will not give you my hand at all, and I will not walk with you. Your way is the way that leads to death. Your words are all untrue. Nay, walk with me but a little space, said the world with a kindly air. The road I walk is a pleasant road, and the sun shines always there. Your path is thorny and rough and rude, but mine is broad and plain. My way is paved with flowers and dews and yours with tears and pain. The sky above me is always blue. No want, no toil I know. The sky above you is always dark. Your lot is a lot of woe. My path, you see, is a broad, fair one. My gate is high and wide. There's room enough for you and me to travel side by side. Half shyly, the church approached the world and gave him her hand of snow. And the old world quick grasped it and walked along saying in accents low, your dress is too simple to please my taste. I will give you pearls to wear, rich velvets and silks to, for your graceful form and diamonds to deck your hair. The church looked down at her plain white robes and then at the dazzling world and blushed as she saw his handsome lip with a smile contemptuous curled. I will change my dress for a costlier one, said the church with a smile of grace. Then her pure white garments drifted away and the world gave in their place. Beautiful satins and shining silks, roses and gems and costly pearls, while over her forehead, her bright hair fell, crisped in a thousand curls. Your house is too plain, said the proud old world. I'll build you one like mine, with walls of marble and towers of gold and furniture ever so fine. So he built her a costly and beautiful house, most splendid it was to behold. 
Her sons and her beautiful daughters dwelt there, gleaming in purple and gold. Rich fairs and shows in the halls were held, and the world and his children were there. Laughter and music and feasts were heard in the place that was meant for prayer. There were cushioned seats for the rich and the well to sit in their pomp and pride, while the poor folk who were clad in shabby array sat meekly down outside. You give too much to the poor, said the world, far more than you ought to do. If the poor are in need of shelter and food, why need it trouble you? Go, take your money and buy rich robes, buy horses and carriages fine, buy pearls and jewels and dainty food, buy the rarest and costliest wine. My children, they dote on all these things, and if you their love would win, you must do as they do and walk in the ways that they are walking in. Then the church held tightly the strings of her purse and gracefully lowered her head and whispered, I've given too much away. I'll do, sir, as you have said. So the poor were turned from her doors in scorn and, the, and she heard not the orphans cry, but she drew her beautiful robes aside as the widows went weeping by. Your preachers are all too old and plain, said the world with, to the church with a sneer. They frighten my children with dreadful tales, which I like not for them to hear. They talk of brimstone and fire and pain in the night of an endless death. They talk of a place which may only be mentioned with bated breath. I will send you some of a better stamp, brilliant and smart and fast, who will tell them people may live as they choose and go to heaven at last. The Father is merciful, great and good, tender and true and kind. Do you think he would take one child to heaven and leave the other behind? So he filled her house with glad divines, gifted and great and learned. And the plain old men that preached the cross were out of her pulpits turned. The angel of mercy flew over the church and whispered, I know thy sin. Then the church looked back with a sigh and longed to gather her children in. But some were off at the midnight ball and some were off at the play and some were drinking in wild saloons. So she quietly went her way. Then the sly world gallantly said to her, your children mean no harm, merely indulging in innocent sports. So she leaned on his poffered arm and smiled and chatted and gathered flowers as she walked along with the world while millions and millions of sorrowing souls to eternal death were hurled. Then the sons of the world and the sons of the church walked closely hand in heart, and only the master who knoweth all could tell the two apart. Then the church sat down in her ease and said, I am rich and my goods increase. I have need of nothing or ought to do but to laugh, to dance and feast. And the sly world heard her and laughed up his sleeve and mockingly set aside, the church is fallen the beautiful church, and her shame is her boast and her pride. And the angel drew near to the mercy seat and whispered in sighs her name. And the saints, their anthems of rapture hushed and covered their heads in shame. Then a voice came down through the hush of heaven from him who sat on the throne. I know thy works and how thou hast said, I am rich and has not known that thou art naked, poor and blind and wretched before my face. Therefore from my presence cast I thee out and blot thy name from its place. I counsel thee to buy of me the true gold that will make you rich and anoint your eyes with heavenly salve to discern your maker's wish. Then the awakened church with deep regret from her worldly course returned. She opened her heart to the knock of Christ as his love in her bosom burned. He gave her her robes and forgave her sins and together they sat and supped. His pauper throne he shared with her for whom he had suffered much. Something that 
was to take away from me. And as we, we're just going to pray in our seats. We're not going to have a ministry team come up. But just something that hit me in that was just the idea that, man, only the master can tell the two apart. Because outwardly, well, if we kind of get with the world, we blend, we, we, we can agree on some things. But inwardly, God knows, are we surrendering to Jesus in the secret place? In that quiet of a heart where nobody, literally no one knows. Your spouse doesn't know. No one knows. God knows. And so we're just going to worship and pray. And uh, I just want you to just bow your heads and, and, and just... Just be honest with the Lord. I mean, his spirit is speaking to many of us right now. And it's, it's probably highlighting an area that says, hey, you're in danger of that broad road. But the good news is Jesus loves us and he sent the spirit of God to lead us into all truth. And he can do that right now. <clears throat> and when we're willing to say, I agree with you, spirit of God, I yield, I surrender my will. I say yes to the will of God and we die inside. Then the life of Jesus is manifested. And you get to experience joy. You get to experience eternal life. So let's be a people of the cross. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we love you. God, we, we pray protection for your church. We pray that we would be a pure and holy people. That we would not be led astray from simple and pure devotion to Christ. Jesus, search us. Shine that spotlight of heaven onto our hearts and show us any way we are off. We just want to be in alignment with your will. So let your will be done. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let that be our prayer as we go forth today. And speak to us as we just respond to you in worship. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.